episode 239 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare. Joining me today is Dan Fesperman to talk about Winter Work, his latest thriller out from Knopf. So welcome back to the podcast, Dan, and thank you for taking the time. Oh, thank you for having me. Good to be back. You know, sometimes I jump right into questions about the story, but in the case of Winter Work, I think you should talk about the novel's time and place because everything that happens is a result of these circumstances. So it's winter 1990. Uh, The Berlin Wall has just fallen and... And things are in chaos, uh, especially for our main character, Emil Grimm, who was high up in foreign intelligence for the Stasi. And uh, he's about to get his last paycheck. He's already been locked out of his office. Protesters have been into the building, throwing documents out the window. And in this chaotic moment in history, um, he's soon to be without a country. He's uh, possibly facing prosecution. Uh, And in in Berlin at that time, all the Western intelligence agencies uh, like the CIA, we're trying to scramble around and pick up all the loose secrets that had suddenly been uh, kind of set free with all these, uh, not just all of these documents suddenly up for grabs, uh, which the East Germans were trying to shred as fast as they could. But also uh, a lot of these people like Emil who were lurking around and were available to be, uh, uh, they were, the CIA was calling them up. They were soliciting them. They were going sort of like door-to-door salesmen to try to get these people to spill their secrets because their biggest secrets, at least as far as the U.S. and NATO and other countries were concerned, and Russia too, because they didn't want this getting out, were more than a thousand agents they had based abroad and their identities and all these people in foreign countries who had been working for the Stasi all of these years, including a few in the U.S., but a lot in West Germany, a lot at NATO headquarters, people who had been stealing secrets for years and uh this felt, felt like an opportune moment for the CIA to finally get to the bottom of who all those people were. And, and it's literal as well as figurative in the book because uh, I remember reading the news, probably some of it that you might've written because you were based in Berlin at the time, yeah. Yeah. Um, that uh, the people that had invaded the Stasi headquarters were throwing things out the window and according to your book, and I bet it's real, uh, Western intelligence agencies were ac- were actually phoning up former yeah. Stasi agents. They, they were. It was, they were. They sort of went, the CIA kind of went into a panic because uh, George Bush, the older George Bush, was president at the time. And he was a former director of the CIA. He was the, yeah. And he saw this TV footage of protesters throwing things out the window. And he said, very sort of offhand. I hope we're getting some of that, which of course, when any top boss says that, people below him scurry to comply and start saying, are we getting some of that? And so the CIA kind of went into a panic. They'd been kind of on hold wondering, well, waiting for the dust to settle. And suddenly uh, it was very ham-handed. They started literally, they got a someone who had given them phone numbers for a lot of these people, these foreign intelligence people with the Stasi. And they started calling them at home, uh, as, as, as the character in the book puts it, like a Florida boiler room scheme. And they were getting a lot of hangups and a lot of indignant uh, people cursing them out uh, for what they were offering. They were offering cash and things like that to kind of say what they knew. 
And so they decided, well, this isn't working. Now we'll just start visiting them door to door, which didn't work a heck of a lot better. So. I, I think it doesn't say a whole lot for the CIA. They were doing that if they had known that the East Germans, I think they found out that as much as 30% of the population provided tips and, you know, they were, they were watchers. There were part-time watchers everywhere. Yeah, there, there were literally probably close to a million people who had been informants for the Stasi. About one in, uh, I think it was around a million, but it was, uh, it was a large number. And uh, it was more than that. And I just can't recall the figure right now. <laughs> but it was, but uh, there was less of that so much that was their worry. It's just uh, they knew that the Russians were still watching because the Russians had shared intelligence with the East Germans and were sort of their partner agency, although considered themselves very much the, the parent agency in that arrangement, the KGB did. But uh, they didn't want all these secrets getting out either. Uh, they might have some use for these people as well. So um, it, was, it was kind of a fraught time and uh, people were getting kind of reckless. Well, you know, the last time we spoke was about the letter writer. And so when I started Winter Work and also when I started The Cover Wife, so hold your thoughts on that because I have yeah. questions. I, you know, I thought to myself, oh, this is going to be very different. Uh, but in many ways, it wasn't because at the core, the characters are grappling not so much with the binary, you know, right versus wrong, but yeah. how much wrong can be lived with. Because it yeah. seems like everything having to do with this the bifurcated uh, post-World War II Germany was a shade of gray. There was no there were no absolutes. Yeah, there were no absolutes. I mean, I think it's pretty much of an absolute that the Stasi spying on its own people and, and converting all these part of the population into becoming informants on their relatives, their teachers, their co-workers. That, that was universally bad. But the, uh, the Stasi's foreign intelligence people kind of like to hold themselves above that and act like, well, we didn't dirty our hands with that aspect of it. And it was a bit of a, you know, it was a self-justifying move. And and they couldn't feel too comfortable about it because they were all working for the same boss. They were all, you know, getting the same privileges as all of those people because of their position in this pretty terrible ministry. So it, there were a lot of gray areas, though, if you were in that foreign intelligence organization. Uh, West Germany wanted to prosecute some of them as uh, for treason, as they called it, as if East Germany had never been a separate nation. Uh, that eventually fell apart. But the fear of being prosecuted was very real for people like my main character, Emil. So th there was a lot of sense of this is a time for self-preservation. Uh, some of them, however, still had this sense of loyalty to this country and this ministry they had served and devoted their lives to. And there was this sudden emptiness because suddenly this whole organization and cause they'd been devoting their entire being to uh, was about to cease to exist. So it was kind of an existential crisis for them as well. Well, you know, that you anticipated uh, my next question because I found it instructive how different people in your in winter work reacted to the unspooling of the status quo. Yeah. Um, it's both a disaster, mm -hmm. as you mentioned, and an opportunity, you know, an end at a beginning. It was very alpha omega. I, I, I appreciated that. And there was this existential crisis in uh, essentially all of the characters had it. 
Yeah, I, I'm always attracted to those types of periods in history, whether it's uh, people in a war zone or in another type of conflict or in the situation like this, where suddenly there was all of this high stress about what is my future? Uh, how can I not only survive this? Uh, some people were thinking, how can I also prosper from this? So it tends to bring out the best and the worst in people. It tends to reveal character uh, at its deepest essence in people. And you're seeing that with the characters in this book. Some of them become quite opportunistic. Some are opportunistic in a lesser sense, but their motives are different. Some are trying to look out for their families. Some are looking out only for themselves. Some are trying to acquire power, money. Others are just trying to kind of get by and, and make it into the future. I was thinking get by and get out. Yeah, get by and get out. Yeah. Um, you you use the word fraught. And, and to me, Germany is so fraught and so tense. Uh, so much has happened there, especially in the 20th century. And yeah. for the most part, entirely of their own making. But the yeah. consequences of Germany's uh, issues, for want of a better, better word, ripple out. Uh, it happened after World War II, and it happened again after the fall of East Germany. These, I, I can remember that within a week of the fall of the, you know, maybe maybe my memory is truncated, but there was already an argument about the border with Poland. Yeah, and I thought to myself, haven't we been here before? Not in my memory, yeah. but didn't didn't this happen before? And the the results were not good. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember there was a pretty funny but dark joke uh, that uh, a comedian made after the uh, when it looked like it was inevitable that the two Germanys were going to reunite. Uh, he said he sort of looked at that the way he would a Jerry Lewis Dean Martin reunion. He says, "I'm not sure, I'm not all, not all that certain I was all that crazy about their earlier work together," but. Uh, uh, but uh, one thing the Germans have been very good about in the 20th century for their, all their horrible and dark history. And if you were an East German, I mean, how bad was it to basically go almost without pause from Hitler to Stalin, which is what they did because um, they were under his domination in East Berlin and East Germany um, from the moment the war ended. But uh, one thing they've been very good about in both cases it, uh, is accountability. Uh, they're great at trying to dig out all the hidden secrets and trying to hold people accountable. It took much longer after World War II. There was a lot of denial. There was a lot of people saying, well, we, we didn't know that was going on, things like that. And Nuremberg was sort of the West trying to hold them accountable. But beginning, beginning in the late 60s, when our youth were having our rebellions over here, and uh, in, over the Vietnam War and the draft and things like that, the youth of Germany were basically demanding accountability from their elders. And there was a big movement to kind of get all of that out of their system and to find out what had everybody done in the war? How had we not only just let the Nazis do this, but we had become a part of that and enabled all of this. And there's a lot of soul searching the accountability and calls for it after East Germany began almost immediately. Uh, they, by the time I was there as a reporter from 93 to 96, they opened up the files of the Stasi that they'd kept on people who were informed on um, as early as 94, I believe it was. This is only 
four years after Germany reunified. I mean, that's amazing speed to beget, to have that much accountability that fast. And they were revealing people who were informants. You could go in and look at your file. Uh, the foreign intelligence people, some of them were put on trial, like spymaster Marcus Wolf. Uh, so uh, it all happened very quickly. And, and the Germans love not just keeping records on everything. They love sort of developing records about the records and, and looking into what happens and documenting all of these things. And then one of the other things that struck me was the transactional nature of the aftermath. East Germany falls and there's a product that the West wants, which you mentioned, they want yeah. the intelligence. Uh, and the product that is on the, there's a product the West wants and it's the same product that the on life support Soviet Union doesn't want the West to have. So right. you have a little tension there. And then there's a price. It doesn't seem to matter that the product is intelligence in the package, that it comes in as a human being. It's all kind of factored in. And, and as I said, transactional on the part of the CIA for the most part, for, as, we, as we look at it from that point of view. Yeah. So that was a little chilling, I, I found. You mean that the CIA would sort of see it in a transactional way, kind of trading their freedoms for information? And it, it's nothing new for them. I mean, if you look at post-World War II in Germany again, uh, one of the first things that the CIA didn't even exist yet, but sort of the holdover from the OSS and what was left of that, uh, one of the first things they were doing was looking for rocket scientists and right. nuclear Operation Paperclip. And they were certainly willing to let those people go, even ones like Werner von Braun, who would, uh, you know, authorize all sorts of slave labor to build the V2. They were certainly willing to look the other way and human transactions there and say, look, you give us your knowledge, you give us what we want, we'll give you what you need, which is your freedom and a clean bill of health. And we won't talk about what was done during the war. Uh, it was done with other even worse people as well, just to get information out of them and files that they had. People who had uh, worked as spies for Germany on the Eastern Front against the Russians, even though a lot of them were Nazi and SS affiliated, they were coddled and kept along because they knew where uh, some of the Russian spies were. And that was suddenly our new enemy. So it's not like the, the U.S. intelligence services were... Um, had to learn this from scratch on how to be this pragmatic and sort of coldly pragmatic and transactional in this way. That's sort of always been their way of doing business. But without, without introducing a spoiler, one of the things that happens is there's a, an evaluation of more than one character as to who would be the more valuable to them. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's what I found chilly, that sort of calculated. Uh, yeah. You know, this one, this one might actually have better product than that one. And yeah, and the one who might potentially have the best product was the one who was probably uh, the most venal and the most uh, I was motivated say, by the most, <laughs> had the worst motivations. For, for I was going to say the least, it was sort of the least savory individual. Right. Right. And, and uh, you know, they were going to they were content to sort of let these two competitors, you know, fight it out among themselves to uh, see who could survive. So. Therein, therein lies the crux of the book, which is very, very exciting. I, I have a tendency to overthink. I read a lot. And uh, at least in the past few years or so, there hasn't been a whole lot else to do. 
So good for me, but um, but it's either an indication of how I was affected by the cover wife, which which came out in 2021. Yeah, that was the intelligence the West is pursuing in Winter Work is is very Cold War centric. Yeah, and I have the feeling that the seeds of 9/11 and certainly the first uh, World Trade Center bombing, which took place in 1993, yeah, were sort of strewn around Germany. But perhaps nobody knew where to look or nobody knew they should look, meaning I'm talking about the Western American intelligence agencies. Yeah, yeah. Or, or if they were looking, uh, if, if it was the FBI and the CIA, they were both finding out different things and not sharing them with each other and therefore tripping all over each other in the process and losing sight of what they should have been seeing all along, uh, which is, as you said, that is sort of at the heart of the cover wife, the, my previous book. Um, I, the seeds were definitely out there by the mid 1990s, maybe not so much in 1990 when, when winter work is set. All of that was kind of developing a little bit later. I wanted, so I wanted to talk about the cover wife because you know it, it must've just been, to have this book come out in the middle of the pandemic must've been very, very frustrating <clears throat> because it, it really, you know, it comes out 20 years after 9-11. Yeah. You know, initially, you know, you, I asked myself, and I know other people I, that read it asked ourselves, you know, too soon. And, and I, I thought, no. So you, you've written this novel, and, and at the core is the baked-in battles between intelligence agencies within the United yeah. States, such as the FBI and the CIA, but also our allies' intelligence agencies to a certain extent. But in the case of the U.S., the functions of the FBI and the CIA have fundamental differences. And the biggest being that while both gather intelligence, the CIA is not a law enforcement agency. They really right. don't care if laws are broken Yeah, I as, to, the, to the extent of the yeah, FBI. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I wouldn't say they don't care, but it's, it's the whole reason they're getting this information. Is for, it's not to prosecute someone. It's not to make it public and air it in a court of law. It's to use it to leverage more information. It's almost information for its own sake. Uh, they've had so many interesting characters over the years who have become obsessed with that to the point where they would even stop thinking about what is it costing us to acquire this just as long as they could acquire it. Whereas the FBI, it's like we're getting this solely to try to punish someone, to try to stop some sort of crime in progress, either from happening or to punish people who have committed one. Yeah. Well, I, you know, their mandates are, are very different um, in the, in that regard. And, and the kind of people that they attract to their services are also different. And I thought, I thought the cover wife, I thought your two central characters were, were the FBI agent and the CIA agent were kind of brilliant. I'm talking about uh, not, it's hard to talk about without spoiling it. Yeah. Uh, the one that is actively investigating that CIA agent, and, yeah, 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 and the yeah. and the FBI agent, yeah. um, were so different and yet seem to be motivated by the some of the same concerns. Uh, they both knew something very, very bad was happening. Both of them yeah. had instincts, and in that, in that, I thought the Cover Wife was really a good book about instincts and the kinds of instincts. You're a journalist. Uh, I'm a former journalist, and your instincts are important. There's a feeling. It's a spidey yeah. sense. Yeah, 
Yeah, and your instincts of people in the field are always going to be more finely tuned anyway, because they're out there actually seeing the targets, uh, seeing what's going on on the ground. And they're going to have more natural, if there is any affinity between people of these two competing, in a lot of ways, agencies, the affinity is going to exist among these people who are out there taking the same risk and looking at the same targets. Where it all gets lost is as the information filters up and their supervisors want to hoard it for themselves, uh, for their own reasons, or for the agency's own reasons. And they're more detached from the fray. And they're more looking out for what's going on in Washington and things like that. So that adversarial business kind of gets worse the higher up you get. So you have a certain kinship. You have a certain kinship. Not always. I mean, I know many a tale of people on the ground who've also had run-ins with each other. And, you know, their their attitudes are bad toward each other, FBI, CIA as well. But if there when there is affinity, it tends to be at that lower level. Well, you know, it was just it was just a, a fascinating book and could it's possible that you have enough of knowledge to have based this on reality. They certainly missed a lot of signals. They missed them in Hamburg. Yeah. They missed them in San Diego. Yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> you know, yet FBI agents sending emails saying, this guy wants to learn how to fly, but isn't interested in landing planes. There may be an yeah. issue. <laughs> yes, yeah. But were you sort of, you know, was that, was there a moment when you looked at when the book was coming out and you just went to yourself, you know, the publishing gods are not looking fondly upon me for this one. Actually, I, I thought it was somewhat serendipitous that it was the 20th anniversary. That wasn't my plan because the pandemic slowed down all of the editing and production. That book came out probably about six months after it would have, if not for the pandemic, uh, which is why my current book is only following by a year, that book, because the previous one got slowed down by the time it was published. I was like two thirds of the way through with with winter work, but um, I, I that didn't really it didn't bother me that the timing was the twentieth anniversary. If anything, that that put the subject more in people's minds. So, well, I thought it was it was a wonderful book. They're both wonderful books, and and I'm I'm interested in the fact that you have relocated your writing to Germany. Yeah. And I'm wondering if if your next book, because my guess is that you have the next book, is yeah. uh, is also in Germany or where else are you going to take us? Uh, my next book, I'm going to do something I haven't done before. I'm going to have a fictional Eastern European country um, with a fictional leader who is somewhat like a current leader in Eastern Europe. But since he's living and, and uh, I, I, I don't want to be changed to the facts too much. So it's going to be set in the Eastern European country of Bolrovia and uh, its capital city of Blatsk. And uh, it's, uh, I'm having some fun with it. I'm, I'm very early. I've only written about four chapters, but. Uh, but isn't that the beauty of fiction where you can. Uh, it is, it is. And, and I've had a lot of, uh, I've had a lot of fun coming up with this. I, I don't want to say completely fictionalized world because you'll see pieces of in this city and in this country, uh, you'll see, you know, little pieces of uh, Budapest, Prague, Krakow. Uh, it, it will feel like uh, all of those cities and none of those cities. And uh, you'll even see a little bit of Vienna, but it will be its own place. And it's kind of, uh, 
it's been interesting for me to come up with that kind of identity. And what time uh, is it? Is it timeless or is it in a particular? No, time? it will be set in about uh, about a about a year ago, about uh, two thousand and early twenty twenty two or late twenty twenty one during the pandemic, but at a time when, at least in that part of the world, it was felt that the pandemic pandemic was easing enough, especially in a country that's run like this one, that they were a bit more lax about uh, things like mask wearing and, and uh, regulations keeping people apart. And uh, things are starting to loosen up in that department. It's kind of in that window when that was happening now. I can't wait. But then again, I can't wait for any of your books. No, um, you. I guess there was one question I meant to ask uh, that that's traditionally my last question, but I, I want to ask this: Your time in Germany, you you touch on it in the acknowledgments of the yeah. work. You you lived there for a long time, and I have to think that that impacted how you filter the stories that you tell. You're very sympathetic to the Germans, yeah. Um, and and for those of us who haven't lived there, it it might be hard to be as sympathetic. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. Uh, yeah, I lived there for three years and uh, it was a few years after the wall came down when, when we first moved there. And it's just, it's a fascinating place. As you said, they've had so much God awful history in the 20th century. It is sort of like living in this theme park of you know, really dark history. Everywhere you go, it's underfoot. Um, Everyone you talk to is aware of it and has been affected by it and grew up hearing about it. And they all have their pretty strong points of view about all of that and about how it should be treated and how people should never forget certain things and how they should regard. Uh, I know there were a lot of West Germans who were upset as, as the reckoning came due for East Germany and the Stasi and all of that. They were saying, yes, that was horrible, but let's not equate this with the Nazis. Let's not try to make ourselves feel better, better by saying, oh, those East Germans, they never, they were just as bad as uh, all of us were, you know, 50 years ago. So there was debate about that. Uh, Germans, what I liked most about them, uh, as opposed to the U.S., where a lot of people don't want to talk about history, especially if it's negative. I mean, look at the whole critical yeah. race theory debate and trying to keep any discussion of race or anything uncomplimentary about the U.S. out of history courses, the Germans were sort of bending over backwards to do the opposite um, and would just talk these things to death, uh, even too much for me. Uh, my favorite cartoon that I saw uh, was in Spiegel, I think, and it showed a bus arriving in heaven. Uh, and it was full of Germans and they were getting out and there was a sign with arrows pointing in two directions. And one arrow said, heaven, this way. And the other way, it said, discussion of heaven. And all the Germans were going to the discussion of heaven. So that kind of sums it up. I think that's a great way, a great way to put it. And uh, thank you. You're absolutely right about history. Europeans, uh, especially Germans, seem to be obsessed with it. Uh, and as a contrast to our country where history, where we have very thin history books. Yes, and we like to clean it up. But. And we like, yeah, we like it. We like our history clean. Dan, thank you for your time today. Thank and you. 